Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. When I was in elementary school, I had a friend named Chase. Chase was a buddy of mine, and we ran around and, and, and did elementary school type of things. He was much older when he uh, found out that birthday cards, Christmas cards, and the like don't have, uh, or they have money in them. He never had a birthday card that had money in it. He was, he was probably like third, fourth grade. You know, uh, grandma sends you a birthday ca- card. It's got a couple dollars in it. Or even, you know, um, when, he, uh, when he would lose a tooth or something like that. A tooth fairy um, would visit and take the tooth, but didn't leave any money. He didn't, he didn't have um, sort of that experience. And I'm telling you, he was shocked when he was a little older. And I'm talking like third, fourth grade when we were all talking, you know, one day. And, and he was shocked to find out that A, everybody else's birthday cards had money in them. And B, that everybody else's birthday cards came in a sealed envelope. He was just getting a card. And so what, what we had determined or what we had figured out was that uh, his parents were taking the cards, opening it up, and taking the money out of it um, for, for all of his elementary life. And, and that sounds, I mean, that sounds horrible. That just sounds like the worst thing to do, you know, until... Until he was about, you know, 16 or so. And Chase, my buddy, bought a car with cash of his own money. His parents had been taking that money out, putting it in a bank account. And of course, they were, they were um, contributing to that account as well. And they amassed enough that he was able to buy his first car by himself. You see, they had a plan. A financial plan that was for the good of their son. And I, I used to think that was so smart. I thought, when I'm older and I have a kid, I'm going to do that exact same thing. But, you know, I didn't. They blew it all at the dollar store. But you still, you know, you know, teach their own. You raise your own kids, I'll raise mine. Um, so there was that um, thing where I thought that was a really cool plan. We all have financial plans, right? You have like a retirement plan. You might have a career plan or an education plan that's geared towards a certain um, yearly income. A debt retirement plan. Several people have that. Churches have debt retirement plans. There's what's called nest eggs. That's a plan. Savings plan. Some of you in our church, we have a number of people who are called financial planners. All right. And they plan uh, with advice your finances. Some of you have a financial plan that's like this. I'm going to get some money. I'm going to spend some money. That's, that's the whole of the plan, right? That's, that's, what you're, that's what you're trying to do there. And, and I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes plans are disrupted. Sometimes our financial plans are disrupted through a downturn in the economy. We've seen that recently. Maybe a layoff or a job loss. That's a sad situation uh, when that happens. Or an unexpected expense that comes along out of the blue, all of a sudden you are uh, faced with paying for something. The point is, we all are familiar with the concept of planning, particularly as it relates, bless you, to, to, to money. We are all familiar with that idea of planning with money. This sermon though, let me just say this, um, so you can calm down a little bit. This sermon is not about money. All right, I'm not going to be talking to you this morning about money. Some folks don't like when preachers talk about money. That that makes them uncomfortable. Uh, They don't like that, that sort of thing. And uh, so to that, I would say a couple of things. First of all, um, you ought to instead uh, embrace that. 
when you're in a church and they talk about money and financial planning and that sort of stuff, you need to embrace that because money is a huge part of our lives. It's a huge part of the way we make decisions and that sort of stuff. And so what you want, what you actually need, even if it's uncomfortable, what you need is for somebody to explain what Scripture says about money. You need that. So we should embrace that. But the second thing that I would just say about that is, calm down, I'm not doing it. All right? So um, it's going to be okay. This text, however, this text uses money or economics or finances as a backdrop to talk about not money, not tithing, but to talk about planning and trust and what we put our trust in. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we do, let's pray together. Whether you're watching online, go ahead and pause. Put your, put your coffee down to the side and hold on. To, don't pause the screen. Just pause with us, everybody. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. Thank you for, for the way that you have blessed us individually, the way that you have blessed us as a church. We are stirred with worship towards you, not only from the excellent uh, music and the vocalist, but also just the fact that we can gather together. We can smile, fist bump, hug. We can, we can sit within six feet of one another. We can, we can be together. And so God, whether or not we are together or whether or not we are uh, logged in, God, I pray that we would sense your spirit moving through this church and that we would leave here putting our trust, not in our own pride, but in your plans. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Isaiah, we've been going for like four weeks now, three, four weeks, and I, I have to admit there are, there is a, a lot of information that can get, I don't know, overwhelming. Um, whether it was myself or Pastor David sharing with you about this king or this nation and, and this war and what was happening between the divided kingdom and all that kind of stuff, it, it can begin to get uh, overwhelming. There's a lot to, to kind of put within our brains, and you can maybe even feel like, uh, man, I'm never going to understand Isaiah. There's just so much going on. I, I can't understand that. So just for this week, and I think any week, I think all of that stuff's important. I think you need to try to learn it, but it's okay if you don't have it all with you right now. All, all I want to show you is that simply uh, the nations around Judah were in conflict. There was a lot of uh, war and, and rumors of war. And this caused the Judeans, the, the, the people that lived there in Judah, to feel um, unsure, unsure about their future. And Isaiah is a prophet who is speaking into that. God has given him a message to share to the people who are unsure about the current climate. That's what's happening, all right? And so that, if, as long as you got that, you kind of know uh, where we're going with this. Isaiah 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Isaiah 23, and I'm going to read to you just two verses. I'll give you just a second to get there. I'm going to really focus in on verse 8 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah 23. This is what the Word of God through the prophet Isaiah says. Who planned this against Tyre? The bestower of crowns whose traders are princes, whose merchants are the honored ones of the earth. The Lord of armies planned it to desecrate all its glorious beauty, to disgrace all the honored ones of the earth. Now, when you read that, you're like, I have no idea what we are talking about. Uh, and, and furthermore, I don't see anything in there uh, that really relates to uh, money or economics. Well, I'll show you. I'll show you what it is. Verse 1 through 7 really starts in that chapter communicating this idea that, that the, the Judeans and, and the region of the Mediterranean, they should mourn. 
They should feel grief. They should be sad for a number. It says, mourn, be ashamed, feel anguish in verse 5. These are all of these emotions that the people were supposed to feel towards the city of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. They should feel or mourn towards Tyre. Tyre is a part of what's called the Phoenician Empire or the Phoenician um, group of people. They were particularly wealthy. This city, Tyre, is one of its uh, strongest, most economically strong cities. It's really cool too. On the Mediterranean, um, I'm going to put it up backwards. Um, So this is the Mediterranean. This is all water and this is Israel and this is Egypt. And so um, this is uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre is kind of like over here north of of Israel and it is actually a two-part city. There is a part of the city that's on the shore, but then there's an island off of the coast a little bit where the rest of the city was. So it's surrounded by water and it had a deep harbor, meaning that a number of ships or larger ships could, um, could port there or could harbor there. And that's how they became economically strong. Have you ever heard of the cedars of Lebanon? If you read through the Bible, you'll you'll see that a number of times. Tyre had access to that wood, all right? Access to the cedar of Lebanon. So it was their their, um, textile. It was the thing that they would trade. They also had access to uh, a particular snail, a snail that was there on the coast that was made to make purple clothing. And so as UCA Bear Country, we appreciate purple clothing, right? So they had purple clothing and they had cedar wood and this helped them be strong. Furthermore, around the Mediterranean there, they would set up these um, port cities that they controlled. And so their trade routes were strong. Their trade routes were healthy. This city is lauded or raised up not because it's strong, fina- or strong military or it's really wise and like Alexandria with its books and its library. This city is set up because because it's economically strong. It's a good investment. It's, it's, it's recession-proof. People need stuff. It's got to come through a port. It's going to be a very strong city. And so the people of the region, including the Judeans, were looking towards Tyre as this strong economic power. And yet God says, mourn the loss of it. Mourn the loss of it. He was going to humble this city. You can see some of the uh, economic kind of language in verse 8 that I read just a minute ago. It says, the bestower of crowns, meaning that those who trade with Tyre or those who lived in in Tyre made so much money, they were like kings, whose traders are princes. Now, that, and the next phrase, whose merchants are the honored ones, traders and merchants are the ones that this city lifts up or makes a big deal out of. In any culture— or in any nation, you can learn a lot by the, the personalities or the professions that they lift up, that they make a big deal out of. In our culture, whether you like it or not, um, the ones that we lift up, that we make a big deal out of, are usually athletes or uh, musicians or actors. And that means, uh, and this is the part that I say, whether you like it or not, that our culture is largely based or uh, we celebrate mainly entertainment and consumerism, okay? And you can see that because the highest paid people we have are, are athletes and, um, and, um, and musicians, those sort of things. That's why it's kind of, even though in our hearts we're like, oh man, teachers should make a lot more. Police officers should make a lot more. That, that would be better. That's true. But culturally, this is what we lift up. Their culture lifts up merchants and traders. Traders. I keep thinking like I'm trading, trader to the crown. Not that, like trader, like barter, okay? 
They are lifting up these people. Why? Because their entire culture is based on trade or economics. They are looking towards this incredibly strong, happy, envied city. Verse 7 has a conflicting, uh, I guess, emotion that is written into it. Verse 7 says, is this your jubilant city? Is Tyre your jubilant city? When we think of jubilant, we think of happy and exciting and this great nightlife and these parties and these crowds and all of the things. The, the region looked toward Tyre with envy, not because of its strength or wisdom or anything, but because of its economics. That's what's going on here. And for some reason, God says this financial powerhouse is going to go through a depression. Not a financial depression, but a complete and total depression. The question that arises, though, is why? Why is God about to humble this city? Verse 9 says the Lord of armies planned it to desecrate all its glorious beauty. Now, one of the struggles we have as English speakers is when we are trying to translate the Hebrew of the Old Testament, and some of it's in Aramaic, over to English. It's easier for us to do that in Greek. Why? Because more Greek words come into the English. Hebrew doesn't have as many words. In fact, have you ever seen the movie um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Anybody ever seen that? Okay, almost everybody in the eight, nobody in this younger crowd. Um, the, there's this line in there where the dad, he keeps saying, give me a word, any word, and I will show you that the root, it is the Greek. You know, that is um, true. Like arachnophobia or something like that, the root word comes from the Greek. In Hebrew, we don't have that. In fact, in Hebrew, probably theorized, the only word that we have that comes over is sack, like grocery sack. Um, that's it. That's all they helped us with. Um, we came up with the rest on our own. So there, uh, that's why it's so, such a struggle. I tell you that. I share that with you because the, the phrase there, desecrate all its glorious beauty, is troublesome or it's difficult for us to pull over to the English and, and to capture all of the meanings of it. In, if you have a different uh, English translation, you may have the phrase, uh, something along the lines of to defile the pride of glory. It's cumbersome. Defile the pride of glory. What does that mean? It means this. It means that the reason, the planning that God had for Tyre was to humble it because it had pride in its money. It was putting its arrogance in its economic strength. Got me thinking. Why is God against pride? Why is that like one of the things he doesn't like? Totally get why he's not into murder. That one makes sense to me. Stealing, okay, that could hurt some people. But why pride? Why does pride upset God? In fact, isn't it a good thing? Doesn't he want us to show him the great things that we can do? Didn't he make us? And if he made us and gifted us with the ways and the abilities that we have, wouldn't it be cool if we were like, hey, look what I did. And God was like, you're right. That's awesome. And it's like fist bumps and hugs and stuff. But he doesn't. He pushes back on pride. Why is that? And in fact, one of the other things that's really confusing, I think, is our culture is like pro-pride. We like pride. We, we're not against it. In fact, like when you think about it, uh, we, we have a phrase, I am um, proud to be an American. You know, we have pride in America. Or you might say you're proud of your children. Is God not good with us being proud to be American or proud of our children? I don't think so. I think it's okay with that. I think it's because when we use that sort of phrasing, when we say, I'm proud to be an American or I'm proud of my children, we're saying something along the lines of, I am happy to identify 
with a certain result. There's a certain result, and I'm happy to be kind of lumped in with that. So I'm proud to be an American because, hey, we landed on the moon. We did that first. We, we have a, a great military strength. We are historically and um, just factually the most benevolent country that has ever existed. We give more to others than anybody ever has. And we created Ford trucks. And so for all of these reasons, we are proud to be an American. Uh, with my sons, I'm proud of my sons. I'm proud that they can talk to adults in full sentences and be respectful with it. That's something I think is a big deal. I am proud that they want to volunteer at the church. They, want to, they, they always want to volunteer. They want to do something when they come. To, I'm proud of that. I am proud that most of the time, some, well, sometimes, they are compassionate towards their sibling and, um, and to outsiders as well. So I'm proud of these things. But the reality is also this. There are times in which I'm not proud of something that they have done, right? I'm always going to love them, but there are times where I'm not proud of that result. I'm not happy to identify with that result. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The same can be true with America as well. You can be proud to be an American, and then at times, not. There's nothing wrong with that sort of emotion. But is God against that pride? Is he against that pride? No. I think that God is against, oh, I know that God. When you read the scripture, he is against this pride that is against God. He's against this arrogance that lifts yourself up to a level of God. When you do that, you rob God of his glory and you act like you don't need him. God is obviously and rightfully against that sort of lifting of oneself up to the point. He's not against being happily identified with some result, but he is against an arrogance that lifts a person up to an area in which they believe that they are equal to or even better than God. Ezekiel 28 speaks of Tyre. Now we're talking, we're in Isaiah. There's another prophet that was speaking about Tyre as well. In Ezekiel 28, the word of God says this, your heart is proud. And you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the sea. Yet you are a man, and you're not a God, though you have regarded your heart as that of a God. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired wealth for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, but your heart has become proud because of your wealth." God was going to humble Tyre because they believed their economic strength made them equal or better than God. If we're not careful, we can slip into this. We don't do it on purpose, but just kind of the way that we are, our, our cultures that surrounds us, not the way that we're raised by our parents, but just the culture in which we are raised in, we sometimes put our trust not in God, but in money. Uh, for instance, we don't pray for health. We have insurance. We used to pray more for health, but now, now we have insurance. We'll take care of that. We don't pray for our daily bread. That's Kroger's job, all right? And so I'll just drive through and pick up some daily um, bread. We used to, used to be that you know, people prayed for what's called traveling mercies. And I'm sure that that was a big deal when it took like four months to get from Europe to uh, New York or, or, or several months to get from New York to Arkansas. We don't pray for traveling mercies anymore. You know why? Because we have Toyota safety sense and lane departure warning. We don't need traveling mercies. We just have nice cars that we have invested in. Somewhere along the line, we have put our trust in our finances. Isaiah's words here really position pride. 
our pride in money or our pride in the plan of money against something else, something very powerful, and it is God's plan. In 8 and 9, you can see the question asked and answered. 8 says, who planned this against Tyre? 9 says, the Lord of armies planned it. It's all about God's plan, his strength. We have talked about this through this series so far, and I really like this layer that Isaiah 23 adds to the series so far. We've talked about God being on his throne. He has all of the, of the, uh, the authority. He's the king. He's still on his throne. We've, we've talked about God um, being in control. He has all of the power. Pastor uh, David uh, shared that with us. And so God is on his throne with all of the authority. God is in control with all of the power. And God has a plan. I think it's really helpful for us to remind ourselves that the one with all the authority and the one with all the power has a plan. And he is working that plan out. That's encouraging when you feel like you're surrounded by chaos. That's helpful if you should feel like everything is completely out of control. It's good to know that all of this marching towards something is meaningful and it has a goal that someone sees where we are going and directing even when we cannot fully understand. When you lay this concept of trust in God's plan or trust in man's profit against one another, we begin to be confronted with the reality that we are often making decisions based on economic reasons and not necessarily based on God reasons. That our planning has a lot more to do with money than it does with God's will. I want to read to you a couple of questions here. And even as I was reading the, or writing these down, I became um, convicted that, man, I do this. It's, it's rooted in, listen to these questions and you tell me. Listen to these questions. When will you retire? When will you take another class or start another degree? When will you buy a home? Where will you buy that home? How many children will you have? When will you start having children? When will you get married? Which job will you take? How long will you work there? I'm not throwing mud at you, and I don't know exactly how you would have made all of those decisions. But I'm guessing that the answer to all of those huge life questions had a lot more to do with a certain amount of money than it had to do with what God's will is for your life, the direction that God wants you to go. Again, I'm not throwing mud, and maybe you didn't, but I think that some of us have. And I think that we are on, the, on the, um, the beginning of leveraging our lives towards being primarily financially informed instead of God-informed. Now, the Bible does say that you ought to look ahead, that a fool does not consider the cost before he builds a building. The Bible clearly says that. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't make decisions based on uh, financial factors, but even in that context, even in Scripture, it's financial decisions that are based on, uh, are decisions that are based on financial factors and God's will, God's influence, God's purpose, and God's plans. I don't know if you've ever thought of these things in this way, that so many of our decisions are this way, but if money dictates your planning and not God, wouldn't money then be your God? Again, I'm not saying that's you, but it's probably the person you're sitting next to, all right? It may be them. We often think about like 
Um, it's bad to live your life chasing the almighty dollar. We'll say things like that. And I think that's absolutely true. I don't think you should live your whole life chasing after the dollar. But what if we accidentally, without paying attention, ended up living our whole life determined by the dollar? We're not chasing it. It's not our goal, but it is every major cause for a life shift that we have. What if we were living that way accidentally. Again, this sermon is not about money. I know you think I'm lying to you right now, but it's not. It is not about your money. I promise. It's about trust. It's about how trust fleshes out in your plans and the way you handle specifically money. I think money is like a thermometer. It's like a, it's like a bellwether. It is a plumb line. It's just showing you what's there. If we look at the way we handle money or plan money, then it'll show us what's there. Verse 18, I'm going to quickly kind of wrap up the um, exegetical portion of this by looking at verse 18. 18 says, But her profits and wages will be dedicated to the Lord. They will not be stored or saved, for her profit will go to those who live in the Lord's presence to provide them with ample food and sacred clothing. 23 Chapter 23 ends with God saying, I'm going to humble that city. I'm going to bring it all the way down for about the lifespan of a king, about 70 years. And then I will allow it to rise again. It will become an economic power again. But this time, her profits and her wages will be leveraged towards God's glory and the good of other people. That's specifically what it says. Dedicated to the Lord and for those who live in the Lord's presence. The wages and the money would be leveraged towards God's glory and the good of other people. This is why I believe you are given money in the first place. I believe that God gives us money and resources and economics to steward those towards his glory and the good of other people. And yeah, the good of other people means your spouse, your kids, your church, those you love. Nothing is wrong with that at all. But that's why he has given it, not to be spent only and solely on you, but to be leveraged for the good of other people. Matthew chapter 25 tells a story. Jesus told a story about this guy who's going on a trip. He's rich. And he gives his servants some money, three of them. He came back expecting that there would be a prophet. That's what God expected in the story. That's the illustration that is being told there. And it's not to show that God is greedy. That's not the point of it because God is not greedy. But it shows exactly the other perspective. It shows that God gives us things in, with the expectation that you're going to steward them. That he's, he's going to give you something with the expectation that when he returns or when you go, that you will be able to say, God, this is what you gave me and this is what I did with it. God, you gave me $100 and I took $10 of it and I invested it in mission and ministry. And these are the people that came to know you as their Savior. And these are the orphans that were adopted. And these are the missionaries that were sent in the churches that were established. And the hungry that were fed. And the lonely that were accepted. This is what I did with your money. And I believe that God will look at that and say, well done. You did good. That's exactly why I gave it to you. To do that sort of thing. First Peter 4.10 says, Just as each has received a gift or money in this case, wealth. It's not just that. It's your time, your talents, your efforts. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good, this is my favorite word, not really, but I like this word a lot, as good stewards 
of the varied grace of God. I think that we need to change our mindset to the point where we begin to see that God gives us things in order to steward them. Back to our text. Verse 18 says that the prophets and the wages of, will be dedicated to the Lord. They will not be stored or saved. Now that sounds like a good, you're supposed to save things, right? Consider the ant, thou sluggard. Isn't that great? We should bring that word back as a, as a mean thing to say to people. Consider the word, thou sluggard. Um, she, she toils all the time. She saves her stuff for a, for a winter. And that's, gonna, that's good. We should save we should store these kind of things. It's not, it's not talking about not being wise with your money. Instead, it's talking about this concept of get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. That's not why God gave you uh, money or resources. He gave it to you to invest, not just to uh, build up your own personal wealth. If your plans are built around trust and money and not in God, your plans will fail. If you plan to be wise, stewarding your money to bring God glory and to help others, you're in a very good spot. They almost cannot fail. Here's the thing, and this really rubs or, or digs down, or maybe like, how, how do I say this? this? This dives deep down to a heart issue. You know, God's plan since the foundation of creation was for your salvation. That we are broken between us and God, and God has a plan to bring you back to him. And here's one thing that you really have to grasp and you really have to hold on to. You can't buy your salvation. I don't care how much money you have, you can't buy your salvation. So one day when you pass away, you're standing there at the pearly gates. St. Peter's not there. That's a Catholic thing. But let's say St. Peter's walking by, all right? And you can't slip him a 20 to sneak you in the side gate, all right? There's no way that you can buy this salvation. The only way, the only way, and, and listen, I know that you think that that's ridiculous. Of course you can't slip 20, but, but we often live our lives thinking, and I'll be really honest with you, we live our lives thinking that good, clean, rich people don't need Jesus. That we look around at ourselves and we're like, well, I live pretty, I don't steal. I, I don't do bad things. I, me and everybody I know, we're pretty um, decent folks because we got this money and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We have this certain lifestyle, so we don't need Jesus. You need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. You can't buy a good relationship with Jesus. The only way that you can be made right with God is trusting his plan. The night before Jesus is, is killed, the night before he lays down his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt that you owed, Jesus prays this prayer. Not my will, but yours. Another way to say that is this. Not my plan, but yours, God. You have to trust that plan. That's how you receive salvation with the Lord. So, a couple of things that, that we need to think about here. And the first one is this. I, don't, I, I said that this isn't about money, and it's not. But... Let's talk about like giving or tithing to a church. One of the reasons that people don't do that and, and they, they're either not givers or they're, or they're what we call tippers. Occasionally, they'll, they'll put a tin in the plate or something like that. They're occasionally, and, and I'm, not, I'm not faulting that. Sometimes that's a life stage that people are in. I'm not faulting that. But one of the reasons people never move from tippers to tithers are tippers to people who consistently and sacrificially give. One of the reasons is because, well, what if I give? what if we get a leak at our house? 
What if, what if my car breaks down? I need, a, I need to get a new car. What if I get cancer? What if my, my wife loses her job? There's all of these questions that really, I can't give to God consistently and sacrificially. I can't do that because what if something goes wrong? Listen, if God said in his word that you are to give consistently and sacrificially to the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ through your local church, which that is what the Bible says about your finances, then he did that with a plan. He's going to take care of things. He's going to provide, and sometimes he provides through the church, and sometimes Sometimes you just don't have the money, but you follow God's plan for the glory of God and the good of other people. So again, I'm not really talking about tithing. I'm just asking you, what, what exactly are you trusting in? Which plan are you invested in? Also this, Second Baptist Church of Conway. You need to hear this, whether you're online or you're in person. God has blessed this church beyond imagination. We are so amazingly blessed. Even the ability to broadcast in the quality and in the way that we are to you right now is part of the way that God has blessed us. And I understand, fully understand, that the way, the means in which God has blessed us is through your sacrificial and consistent giving. I get that. We, we have money. We have collectively been blessed by God financially. And I believe that we should then, as a result of that, take care of our staff financially. I believe that we should keep our facilities nice. Not just acceptable, but nice. I believe that we should invest in other churches and to make sure that the weaker are made stronger. That we should send missionaries around the globe. And right now we are participating in sending over 5,000 missionaries around the globe. That we should train missionaries and preachers and teachers and ministers um, to share the gospel accurately from the word of God. And we do that through six seminaries and countless colleges. That we should make sure that orphans are adopted and that when the lights go out because of a tornado or the electricity is down, that we should, as Great Commission Baptists, go rushing into the darkness and help other people. I believe that we should do all of that, and we are. We are doing every bit of all of that through our finances. God has given them to us, and we are giving them away for His glory and the good of other people. But I don't believe that we should just do that. You cannot and you ought not give the money and then sit back in your nice building and not follow the plan of God. Because the plan of God has always been to give and go. See, when Jesus ascended, he said, go into all the world and share the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's plan for us is to give and go. That's why he's leveraged finances for us. And it's an amazing, beautiful thing that God is doing in Second Baptist Church of Conway. I read in Forbes about a man named Chuck Feeney. Chuck Feeney. And I guess it's because of the way Google and stuff does. Um, I'm seeing that in tons of articles now. <laughs> like, like Google really wants me to know about this guy named Chuck Feeney. And he is fascinating. In 1982, which was a long time ago, right? I mean, that was forever ago. That's the year I was born. In 1982, Chuck Feeney decided that his wealth, he's extremely wealthy, he was going to give all of it away 
before he died. He became super wealthy, him and his business partner, through those duty-free stores in um, airports, all right? So that's him, and he amassed this massive wealth, okay? So he's got all this wealth. In 1982, he forms this foundation. It's a secret foundation, okay? It's a covert. It's not like, a, a, I don't know, one of those secret foundations. It's a secret foundation, and they're going to give away all of his money um, before he dies. That's the goal that he's going to give away all of his money before he dies. He had a couple of um, objectives here. First, it had to be a secret. Nobody was allowed to know or say who was giving the money. He wanted to give away his wealth in total anonymity. I am really proud that I got to spit that one out. And anonymity. He, nobody knew. The largest receiver or recipient of uh, Mr. Feeney's money was Cornell University. Cornell University received over one billion dollars in secret from Mr. Feeney. You'd think somebody would stand around and go, hey, we got an extra billion sitting over here. Uh, does anybody know where that came from? But they didn't, all right? And so it just came in through the ways that it needs to come through. Here's something else I think is super fascinating. Mr. Feeney went to Cornell University, that's his alma mater, on the GI Bill, all right? So he went through, self-made, made all this money, ended up giving a billion dollars to him. Even though he's super wealthy, he lives uh, very modestly. He has never owned a car nor a home. He rents a small apartment and he wears a $10 Casio uh, wristwatch. He's just that kind of guy. I read a story about Mr. Feeney. I read a ton of stories about Mr. Feeney. I read a story about Mr. Feeney in which he always flew coach. You know, he's cheap flights, and he didn't have a backpack or a wallet or anything. He would just carry, like, magazines and books he was going to read in a plastic bag. All right, so this guy gave a billion dollars to his alma mater, and he's got, like, a Kroger sack with a magazine in it. You know, he's just going to sit there and get the peanuts. So that's Mr. Feeney. In February of 2020, this year, February, they shut down his organization, his I'm really trying to say philanthropic, you know. He's really doing nice things for other people organization, all right? They shut it down. You know why they shut it down? They gave away all of his money. He ain't got no more money. They gave away all of his money. In the last 38 years, that organization, Mr. Feeney, gave away $8 billion with a B. $8 billion they gave away. Besides a little nest egg he kept aside for he and his wife. He wrote a letter to a gentleman named Bill Gates and another one named Warren Buffett in which he challenged them to give away all of their wealth before they die. They accepted the challenge with the caveat they would only give away half of their wealth, which I can't fault them for that. In that letter he wrote this, I cannot think of a more personally rewarding and appropriate use of wealth than to give it away. He believed that you should not leave anything in your will, that you should give it all away before you die. That way, the needs that are right now are met right now, and you get to see the difference that it makes. That's what he's challenging them to do. I read a bunch of stories about Mr. Feeney, I told you, and I can find no evidence, even though I looked for it, that he is a believer. I don't believe that Mr. Chuck Feeney is a Christian. I don't know that Mr. Bill Gates or Mr. Warren Buffett are Christians either. His causes would not be things that you and I would invest in. The things that he invested in that I read about, I would not give my money to. What I'm saying is that even apart from the gospel and apart from Jesus Christ, Mr. Feeney came to the right conclusion about finances, about making a plan to do good for other people. What if you had the opportunity to help people right now 
in amazing ways that would last for all of eternity. Would you give to that? Would you give your finances? Would you give your time? Would you give your energy? Would you give your gifts? Would you plan in that direction? I bet you would. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.